So it's July 7, 2018, in the Loka Dam near Frankfurt. Yes. How did the how to become enthusiastic in devotional service. Now, Srila Prabhupada has a nice definition of enthusiasm. Let's look it up. If we look at... And then don't worry about the kids at all. Just like don't stress at all. They don't bother me in the slightest. So if we look at the nectar of instruction, Prabhupada gives a very nice definition of enthusiasm. Enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. There we go. Okay. So, in the purport, so here we go. So, Prabhupada says here without enthusiasm, one cannot be successful. Even in the material world, one has to be very enthusiastic in this particular field of activity in order to become successful. A student, businessman, artist, or anyone else who wants success in his line must be enthusiastic. Similarly, one has to be very enthusiastic in devotional service. Enthusiasm means action, but for whom? The answer is that one should always act for Krishna. And Prabhupada also gives... Action. Here we go. Endeavor executed with intelligence and Krishna consciousness is called utsaha or enthusiasm. So that's a very nice definition. First of all, Prabhupada's saying that in order to get anywhere in anything, we have to be enthusiastic, isn't it? Yes. Can you all hear me without a mic? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, right, you can't do anything. I mean, you can't cook a meal, you can't go to work, you can't take care of your children, you can't have a nice marriage unless you have some enthusiasm. And here he's saying, endeavor executed with intelligence and Krishna consciousness. So endeavor, you're making some effort. You're doing something that's making an effort. You have some intelligence. It's not just, it's not just blind. And Krishna consciousness, you're aware of Krishna. So let's look at this piece by piece. So you're actually doing something. So you're chanting japa, or you're worshipping the deity, or you're offering your food, or you're reading the scriptures, and you're doing it with some intelligence. You're understanding why you're offering your food. You're understanding why you're chanting japa. Right? You're understanding why you're reading the scriptures. And you're analyzing or appreciating what you're doing also with intelligence. And then you have some awareness of the presence of Krishna. You have some awareness of Krishna's presence in his name, some awareness of Krishna's presence in the scriptures, some awareness of how Krishna is eating the food, some sort of awareness. And if we're doing that, then that is enthusiasm. 
Now, what would be the reasons that our enthusiasm tends to go down? Huh? So I think part of it is just we don't have other people to encourage us, and maybe we have people who are discouraging us. So we might have, you know, our own mind discouraged. Oh, I'm too tired. Let me just do what's easy. This is too hard. It's not working anyway. Why bother? Then we may have other people who are saying, hey, let's go to the movies, let's go to the restaurant, you know, whether they're your co-workers or family or friends or whatever. And then we may be exposing ourselves to, you know, just the, I hate to just call it the media, but the media, you know, this news show and this movie and this show that all seem to present that religious people are rather foolish and that the main thing in life is just to make a lot of money and have a big house. And so all those things tend to sap our enthusiasm. And I think also, sometimes when we have so much to do and we're just tired and our mind is tired, you know, we do get physically and mentally tired. And if we plan for our devotional activities when we're physically and mentally tired, then it's a little difficult to be enthusiastic about anything. You know, if you say at 8.30 at night, well, I think I'm going to get out my bead bag. So it's a little, it's a little hard then to be enthusiastic because all you want to do is go to sleep or be entertained. You don't really want to sit and meditate. So that's... The, the solutions then are obvious in the problems. So if the problem is people or circumstance, that is not good for your eyes, sweetie, at all. Yeah. They're really quite bad for your eyes. So if one thing that saps our enthusiasm is people or events who don't have faith, so one way to be enthusiastic is, why don't we turn that off so they don't play with the light? Just keep the, there's a power, no. All of us. Yeah. And yeah, you usually get it twice. Yeah. So one obvious solution is to be with people who do encourage us. You know, that's why we have our, our sanghas. That's why we get together. That's because when you're with other people who are interested in spiritual life, you feel much more encouraged. I think it's just natural. Prabhupada talks about being with other people in whatever field that you're going to you're going to have. You know, doctors like to have associations of other doctors and things like that. And then to try to have your your day worked out so that you can give some of your best time. For I mean, for me, I find my best time is in the morning, but whatever is the best time for you, whenever you're most awake and alert and, and functional, give some of that time to your sadhana. Don't, don't give it your worst time. And then to... Uh, you know, be careful what you're filling your, your mind and your, your heart with. I, you know, I, I don't expect anybody nowadays to uh, not consume any media at all. I don't think that's reasonable anymore. I used to tell people, just go to the big box in your living room and go to the back of it and find the wire and follow it to the wall and pull it out. But now everybody has a little box in their pocket, so it's not quite so easy. Uh, but be discriminating in your consumption of media. And, and really pay attention, you know, what is it, what media do I consume that adversely affects my enthusiasm? 
and what you know, what media can I consume that is either neutral or or positive? Be it, be it discriminating, like you discriminate in what you eat, be discriminating what your mind eats as well. And if you have some somebody in your life who's also interested in spiritual life, and if you try to arrange your day and your week, etc., so that you can give some good time for Krishna consciousness, and, and you're careful about what else you're taking in, it also helps to have some regular, you know, you have a daily time. Like, you don't really have to worry about being enthusiastic to brush your teeth or take a shower. It's just what you do. You don't, you don't stress, how can I be enthusiastic to take a shower? So I think part of having regular sadhana is just having regular sadhana. And you don't get on the plane of the mind. Do I want to do this or not? And how many rounds do I want to chant? You make a commitment to doing something regularly, and then the taste from it should also give you enthusiasm. Another thing to keep in mind is Krishna says in the 14th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, text 22 to 25, that one... Am, can you all follow my English? Yes. Am I talking too fast? No. Okay. Because I'm talking much faster than I'm talking to the Germans. No, it's just fine. It's fine? Okay. I'm not quite as fast as if I'm in America, but I'm twice as fast as I was talking to the Germans. You can all follow, huh? Yes. Not a problem. Okay, good. All of a sudden I thought I'm talking too fast. So in that verse, Krishna says, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear, knowing that the modes alone are active. So some of what we call enthusiasm is just as the modes go through on a daily, weekly basis, it's when the mode of goodness happens to be in the atmosphere. And then we feel illuminated and enthused. And when the mode of ignorance is in the atmosphere, then we feel sad and we feel tired. And we may associate those changes of the modes with our spiritual enthusiasm or lack of it. But what we want to be able to do is understand ourselves as something different from both the body and the mind. To understand that we are the observer. And to see that that's material. You know, sometimes our body is healthy and our mind is happy and peaceful. Sometimes our body is sick or just fatigued and our mind is in anxiety. And in both cases, to neither long for it nor hate it. Just observe. Oh, these are changes in the mind. They're not indicative of my spiritual enthusiasm. That looks very dangerous. It does not look like a safe situation. Maybe that window could be closed. You just open, you know, how it's open just at the top. I think it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, then close it completely because... Yeah, we don't want a child out the window. Can someone close that window? Does that help at all? Not completely. Yes. 
But I'm wondering, it's, it does, as far as the enthusiasm, does that help? Yes. You know, it's, it's very important that when the mind and body go into the mode of ignorance, which they do. I mean, certainly, we can't close that window? It won't close? You want to close it completely? Well, if we can't just have it open at the top, it'd be better to have it closed completely than to worry about children climbing out the window. No, it's not Can it... Then just close it. It's it's not worth the risk of some child climbing. I really think that's one of the biggest problems. It's just associating the normal downtimes of the mind and body with some spiritual defect. And the uptimes of the mind and body, associating that with some spiritually good thing. Whereas neither of them have anything to do with the spiritual. To find one's enthusiasm on a different platform. I mean, a lot of how we find enthusiasm is by our experience. You know, as we do, as we read scripture, as we chant japa, as we do kirtan, as we offer our food on a regular basis we start to experience more and more of a taste and satisfaction from it. And it's that taste and satisfaction that drives our enthusiasm more than anything else. Ultimately, that's what it has to be. You know, but the other things are there too. I'm thinking about like, almost every morning, I take a walk for exercise. I take a fast walk. And if I do that every day, I feel much healthier, my body works better, I have more energy, but you know, sometimes I'm lazy, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to walk today, right? And then maybe if I go for a few days without walking, and any exercise, then I really feel the difference. So I have experience that I feel better with exercise, I know that. And so I have enthusiasm for exercise based on my experience, but that doesn't mean I never struggle, even though I have experience. And it's certainly very helpful if I have somebody to walk with, which doesn't happen very often. But if I had somebody who walked with me, then I don't think I'd ever skip a day. I don't think I'd ever have a, oh, not today. So even when we have experience, having other people in our lives and a supportive lifestyle is still very helpful. Yes? Well, uh, the question is actually, so I have, I have heard many people, not in ISKCON, but uh, different people telling that, okay, in the ancient India, there was a lot of scientific discoveries and it was actually... Like, there was a lot of great things about science, you know, technology was a lot advanced and all these things. Yes. So, uh, how, how, is it, can, how, can, how is it compared to the now and the old, olden times? Was it actually developed like how it was now or it was different or uh, like was it materially, you know, all these technologies were developed in the ancient times, let's say in the time of Krishna or in the times mm. of Kurukshetra war? Well, if we just look at the scriptures, we see that Technology was developed not only in gross ways, but also in subtle ways. So people were able, just like nowadays, uh, the governments, they may not admit it always, but they're, uh, all the big governments are studying paranormal uh, activity. You know, the 
in the former Soviet Union, it was a very big thing. But it's still going on, at least the, the wealthier countries. Of course, they're, they're studying these because they want to try to militarize the, the knowledge, obviously. Uh, but this sort of a, a knowledge was there, at least according to the scriptures, that people had, they also militarized it, they had subtle weapons, they could do subtle travel, they could travel to other planets. So there's quite a bit of evidence of that, not only in India, but throughout the world. There's in Peru, I don't know if you're aware, but there's uh, pictures in Peru, in the desert, that you can only see from an airplane. If people didn't have any facility to, to go in an airplane, why would they have made these pictures? Who would they have made them for? There's, uh, there's one African tribe, I forget the name, starts with a D, that uh, they weren't very advanced materially, but they had knowledge of stars that were only visible through high-powered telescopes. And they were asked, where did you get this knowledge from? And they said, well, we were visited by beings from this star, and they told us where it is and what its rotation is. You know, there's buildings in, in South America, and one building in Florida, where the huge stones are put together without any kind of mortar. And they fit together so perfectly that you can't even get like a needle or a credit card between them. And nobody knows how this is done. We don't have any kind of technology today to do this. Some of these buildings, the stones are from quarries that are very, very far away, like 300, 400 kilometers away, in the mountains. And again, we don't have any machine in our modern age that could transport these huge blocks of stone through the mountains and set them in place. So not only in India, but throughout the, the world, there was obviously some very advanced knowledge. I mean, also in Central and South America, there's uh, sculptures and paintings of black Africans. How did they know? I mean, there must have been people traveling over the oceans. But in our, you know, we don't know how. We don't, even, you know, I, I lived for a while in Hawaii, and the Hawaiian islands are very small, right in the middle of the Pacific. So they were colonized by other Polynesians. But how did they get there? So nowadays they try to replicate the, the technology they use to get there. But how did they know there were islands there? You weren't just going to happen upon them. You know, they're really small islands in a very big ocean. And if you didn't know that they existed, there was no way that you would just chance upon them. And you weren't going to take this huge, you know, oceanic journey. It, it, it just would be unbelievable. And they had ways of navigating which today are lost. You know, they could navigate in ways by the stars that there's probably only 10 or 15 people on the whole planet that know how to do this anymore. So there's a lot of ancient technology in all the old cultures, not just India, that's been lost. And is it like what we have today? Well, at least in the scriptures, it sounds like it was better. Because most of our technology today is not only very gross, but it has a very high price. You know, for all of the... You know, most of us, like myself, we kind of push aside our knowledge and our guilt about these things. But just like each of our smartphones has these rare metals, 
And in order to get these rare metals, there are these children that are being exploited. In the, yes, you all know about this. So there's, for all of our conveniences and technology, there's some commensurate horrible suffering that's going on in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's really a, a terrible thing. What to speak of all the pollution? You know, we, a lot of our modern convenience is due to plastic. A lot of, you know, our furniture, our, as so many things, is from plastics. But what is plastic doing to the environment? It's just, it's unbelievable. You know, if you study something about what's happening to the oceans, it's not just plastic floating on the oceans, but it's throughout the ocean, all the way down. It's filled with plastic. And the, the life in the ocean is, is changing. Or even just artificial fertilizers. Even just making, you know, artificial nitrogen. It's changed the whole ecosystem of the planet. So what I understand from the scriptures is in ancient times people had technology that didn't cause this kind of harm. They were much more aware of how to be comfortable on the earth and technologically proficient without also polluting the earth and exploiting people and damaging the earth. And they knew subtle arts of technology, not just gross. So most, almost all of our technology today is very gross technology. So that's what I understand from the scriptures. I mean, from the scriptures it's described that there's four ages of the earth and that right now we're in the cosmic winter. We're, we're in like a spiritual winter in Kali Yuga when, you know, people's advancement is at the same time ruining them. So, you know, I have a smartphone, but then we're dying of cancer from the pollution <laughs> that, that's created by having the smartphone. You understand? So that before they were able to be advanced without that. I mean, in Satya Yuga, people could live without agriculture even the, the, the earth was providing food without any need of agriculture. And people could travel to other planets. And people from other planets were traveling here. Of course, that's still happening to some extent. But it was all over. The, the earth was, was one empire. There was uh, one of, one of uh, Srila Prabhupada's disciples, who unfortunately he died some years ago, but he was researching about evidence in all the ancient cultures that's similar to what we read in the Vedas. That was really fascinating. The evidence of, of a worldwide advanced spiritual culture where people knew how to be spiritually enlightened and also to be materially advanced. You know, we, we have an idea, I think many people have an idea that being spiritually advanced means that you, you live like a primitive person, you know, and that you're much more spiritual if you live that way. But in the times of the planet when people were more spiritual, they also had much higher technology that didn't have all these harms. So will that happen again? According to the scriptures, yes, it will happen again, but not for a very long time. Yes. You have very much experience how to handle a kid. Uh, my question is that uh, 
me and my husband, because we grown up in India, it was very easy because our family, we are from devotee family, so oh, we used to see and we did not question, you know, why we are doing something. Mm-hmm. And our daughter, until now, she was doing it, yes. but now she questions also. So is it a, how to handle this, to force her to do it, certain things or we should let her decide for herself? Okay, well maybe those aren't the only two choices. <laughs> the husband could be. Oh, there's probably about ten. How old is your daughter? She is six and a half. Six and a half. Okay. Because now she questions, like, well, well that's, why do I do this? Yes. And we explain, okay, it will make you happy, it will have some feeling and certain things. But I don't want to force her. But I struggle sometimes how to make her understand this is the way. Okay, you're using the word make. You say, I don't want to force, but I want to make her. Uh, Because our experience is... But your experience is from another time. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago when wherever we grew up, we didn't see a whole lot of other examples. doesn't matter where you grew up. I mean, when, when I was a child, uh, I had a, a sister who moved overseas, and there was no phone. You couldn't call somebody across the Atlantic Ocean. You know, a letter would take a month. And I remember my father bought a big tape recorder. I mean, a tape recorder then, wasn't, it wasn't like this, you know. It was as big as this table. And he bought one for us and one for my sister, and a big reel-to-reel and we would, we would make a recording and then we would mail it to her. And she would listen. Yeah, and then the, she would listen to us on the spools, yeah? And then she would make a recording and send it back. And I remember um, when I went over for her wedding, I went on a propeller plane across the Atlantic. But you didn't, you know, the news was a week or two late. You know? No, actually you like that. Yeah, you remember that, right? <laughs> I prefer that. You prefer that, well. Sorry, it's gone. <laughs> but it was like that, you know, the news was a week or two late. And most people didn't have experience of anybody outside of their own community. I mean, unless you lived in a very big cosmopolitan city like London or New York, I, you really didn't see people who were very different from your family. You know, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, everybody in your community pretty much had the same values. I mean, when I was growing up, I really didn't know people who were very different from my own family. I just, I didn't meet them. You know, they, they just were not part of my lives. And even, you know, television, when I was a child, there were four channels, and they were only on, on during the daytime, and it was all live television. You know, there just wasn't that much option to find out about other things. I mean, there were many things I didn't even know existed in the world until I was in my 20s that now children are finding out in school when they're four and five years old. So I think, you know, the way it used to be, yeah, many things you didn't ask about because it was everybody just did them, and it was just kind of life. But now the children are asking because they're seeing so many different options. They're seeing, well, this person does that, this person does that, and, and so therefore they're asking, why do we do this? Why do we have to do this? 
So formally, you didn't have to force your children. It was just there. You know, it wasn't that, that formally that people were forcing. It was just what everybody was doing. You, you didn't see an option. And today, just leading by example is not enough. Now, before I get to what you can do, I'd like to bring up this idea of force in general. So, does she brush her teeth every day? Do you force her? So, how come she brushes her teeth every day if you don't force her? We, we need to remind her. You remind her. Does she go to school? No, kindergarten. Kindergarten. Does she go to kindergarten? Do you force her? But does she go? Yeah. So, think about that. With children, there's many things that they do every day. But if we say, do you force? You say, well, I don't force. But does she have a choice? If she says, no, I don't want to brush my teeth, is that acceptable? No. But are you forcing? Not really. Yeah. But sort of. But not really. But sort of. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And if, if a child's eight, nine years old and they say, I don't want to go to school, is that okay? Mm-hmm. No. But are you forcing? Well, sort of. But not really. Do you understand? It doesn't feel like force. I didn't feel like my parents are forcing me to go to school. But at the same time, I couldn't say, I'm not going to go to school. Does that make sense? If I said to my parents, I don't want to brush my teeth, they said, no, we brush our teeth. That's, that's what we do. <laughs> so I didn't feel forced. It wasn't like, you have to do this, or, or I would be punished, or something like that. It wasn't like that. So... If you can think about spiritual habits the way you think about that your children brush their teeth and they go to bed, right? I'm sure your children, they just they can't stay up till one in the morning, right? No, she sleeps by seven o'clock in the evening. But she has a bedtime, huh? Yeah, seven o'clock. Do you force? We remind her. Okay. And she th- knows that she has to go to kindergarten and she loves going to kindergarten. Okay. But you use the word has to. She knows she has to go to kindergarten. So there's some element of, with children, that this is what I have to do. But there's not a mood of force. A mood of force is where I'm using my superior power and I'm going against your little power. Mm-hmm. And you're fighting me, but I'm overpowering you. So you should only do that with your children when they're in danger like they're going to climb out the window, or they're going to run in front of a car, or they're playing with a big knife or something. You should reserve that kind of force for those things. But you can certainly have expectations, and you can certainly have things that your family does, and especially if you do it regularly. If you do some sadhana every day, or you do some sadhana every week, and you simply say to your children, we expect you to come, and this is something that we do. So that, that's perfectly fine. You do that with so many things. Yes? Of course we do that with so many things. We expect our children to go to bed. We expect them to brush their teeth. We expect them to go to school. We expect them to wear clean clothes. And it's, it's part of what we do. So it, to expect them to have some sort of spiritual life and some sort of worship is also fine. As long as there's not this mood of I'm using my superior power to make you do something. And as far as asking and wanting to understand, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Actually, Krishna says in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, 
and that one who was Krishna conscious in their previous lives, they're always going to be inquisitive. So to ask, why do we do this? I, mean, I remember when I was four years old asking my mother, you know, why are we following this religion? And she said, because my mother did. And I said, well, why did she do it? She said, because her mother did. And I said, that's a very bad answer. We should do things because they're true, not just because your mother did it. So having this inquisitiveness and having this uh, wanting to understand things is something that should be encouraged. Uh, I want, also wanted to understand, because you have a huge family, so how the kids are, they automatic follow or... Uh, well, everybody's different. You know, every, because every, sometimes we feel, maybe because different. we are here, are we providing her a, the way we are grown up in the society in India? Well, India's so changed we, also now too, you know. That's true. But still, relatives are there. So many things has been done. So That's true. But even India is changing. I don't see the young people in India are so religious anymore. You know, I mean... I try to think of where in the world are people still really attached to tradition. The only places I've been where I find that would be Indonesia and Japan, where you really have a strong sense of tradition that's still there, and I'm sure that's not going to last much longer. Every other place it's falling apart. And, you know, people are trying to impose it, but it's, it's a losing battle. I'm sorry to say, but, you know, even in some Himalayan village, people have the internet, right? And once you have the internet, you're seeing everything. Yes? yes? Everything and anything and things you never thought existed. It's like, really, do people actually do that? And that's, you know, and, and how are you going to keep that from your child? You know, good luck. Really, I, I just don't think it's possible. I really don't. And that means that our children are going to become aware, certainly by the time they're 12 or 14, of all kinds of things that, again, we didn't even know about until we were like 25 or 30. And not all are good things. That are Many are very bad things. Yes. And very strange things. Not just bad, but very bad. So I have a whole seminar on... I don't know if I'll have time to do it here, but you can find it on the internet. It's on YouTube. Of the four keys to raising your children in Krishna consciousness. Mm-hmm. The best recording of it was done in Melbourne. It's kind of funny because usually I do an hour and a half, and that was only a half an hour. <laughs> but the, the recording, everything they do in Melbourne is first class. So the recording is excellent. So most people end up watching that one, although... Um, like on this kind of desire tree, I have the whole thing. So I'll tell you just briefly, because I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, but the first thing is relationships of love and trust. So again, in the old societies, it could be, I am the father, therefore you obey. That will not work in 2018. In 2018, it's, they will obey because there's love and trust. You could have the title mother, father, uncle. That's not going to be enough anymore. We, we naturally want to follow people that we love. And then the next thing is stories. So we are formed by stories. We all have a natural love for stories. And stories 
form our character, they form our morals, they form our values and our, our view of the world. So be careful what stories you are exposing your children to. And especially when they're very young, really saturate them with Krishna stories. Stories about devotees and stories about Krishna. That's the old, old tradition that people would come together in the evening and hear Mahabharata and Ramayana. Now people sit around the TV set in the, in the And the next thing is meaningful service. So all of us will identify some place where we can make a meaningful contribution. So even as young as four, six years old, a child can start doing something valuable for Krishna. Certainly by the time they're somewhere around 11 to 14, they should be doing something where they're using their talents and their nature in Lord Chaitanya's mission. So not just sit down here and you know color a picture, but try to find what their real talents are. And what I've seen is that the, the children who became good devotees as adults, many of them had some valuable, meaningful service at a very young age. You know, like my son Keshava was designing, he, he designed and laid out a new songbook for the temple. I think how old he was, maybe 12 years old. And people treated him as an adult in that service, and it was a very enlivening thing for him. I mean, uh, and that picture, the, my grandson, whose wedding that was in that picture. So he was writing drama scripts at six that were actually performed in the temple. I mean, we had to edit them a little bit. But he was writing the, the script, and it was being performed in the temple. So this is the, the kind of thing. And then the last thing is positive emotional experiences. And there's a whole science of this. It's known as triggers. Perhaps you've heard of trigger warnings. So triggers are when a particular event is connected with an emotional state, either positive or negative. And it's because of, of these triggers that you want to be careful about what you're talking about force. So if, if, if when a child is in kirtan, you're yelling at them, and you're, you're hitting them, and then they're going to hate kirtan. You understand? So you want to try to have it that when you're doing sadhana, that's not the time to be correcting your child. And it's not the place. If you have a place for sadhana, that if you need to correct the child, take the child out of that place, correct them in a different place, and try to correct them at a different time also. And try to give your children positive emotional experiences in Krishna consciousness. And one thing I did with some of my grandchildren, um, with three of my grandchildren, I took them traveling with me around the world to different ISKCON temples and different festivals and really gave them a positive emotional experience of Krishna consciousness. And two of those have gotten initiated. And I know a lot of that has to do with the fact that they had really positive experiences connected with Krishna consciousness. So that's something to look for, especially like in festivals and programs. Don't just bring your kids and have them run around and play but have them do some practical service where they're going to get some real experience. So those are four things. Relationships of love and trust, stories, meaningful service, and positive emotional experiences. So again, I would suggest you actually watch the whole seminar because in five minutes I'm not going to be able to explain it well enough. And if those four things are there, then even in our crazy society, you've got very good chance. I mean, everyone's an individual. Everybody has to make their own choices.
Your children will probably make you very happy in some ways and not very happy in other ways. It's just how it is. But if you do those four things, you have a very, very good chance of your children taking out Krishna consciousness with, with enthusiasm. Yes? <coughs> Mother, when we come to Krishna consciousness, let's say especially for me or anybody who is in Indian body, so we already have some kind of subcultures yes. of the Vedic society. And then we come across ISKCON, you know, people dancing, chanting, and uh, you know, a different way of life, different culture to what we have been brought upon. Although we are also from the you know, same kind of culture. So let's say for me, I was like, my parents were more Ram, more Ram student. Okay. But then when I came, so how does a person, when he sees, you know, like, let's say our movement, uh, you know, how does he get full conviction that, okay, you know, this is the... Full conviction. Full conviction will be there at Krishna Prema. That this is for the practice as well. Let's say, you know, sadhana bhakti. How to, you know, get this conviction that, okay, this is the way, you know, with, uh, which is the best way. And, uh, you know, so th- this faith will actually help us to take that leap of faith from, you know, moving away from whatever we have been taught or whether, you know, whatever we have been doing since so many years. Because it's sometimes a tussle, you know, whether I do this or do that. How do we get convinced of what is the best way? One of the things that made me want to follow Srila Prabhupada is that he wasn't sectarian. That Srila Prabhupada would, would say, you know, there are so many ways to achieve God consciousness. It was something he told my father the first time we met Srila Prabhupada in 1974. And my, my father said, Prabhupada, I have my own religion. I mean, if you think it's different for you, imagine how different it is for me. So, you know, my father said, I have my own religion, is that okay? And father said, yes. He said, there are many religions. He said, just like we're in Chicago, there's many planes going to Chicago. But they have to know they're going to Chicago. My own personal conviction from Srila Prabhupada is that there are many, 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 many ways to achieve love of God and perfection of life. And they can be categorized in four categories of karma yoga, jnana yoga, jnana yoga, and bhakti yoga. And any bona fide way is going to be one of those or some mix of them. And they're all real ways, and they will all work. So why am I in this way instead of those other ways? And then why in this particular form of this way? Well, why am I in bhakti yoga? Because I'm convinced that it's the most joyful and natural and easy. To do jnana yoga, I would I find more difficult. Same with jnana yoga and karma yoga. All of those seem to me to be more difficult and more dry. Bhakti yoga seems to be the most joyful and the most natural. And then why this particular form of bhakti yoga? At least I personally haven't found anywhere else where there's such a thorough, cohesive, comprehensive, philosophical understanding and practice. That's my own conviction. I am not going to say that absolutely it is like that, because I can't possibly have examined everything on the earth. 
So I, I'm not going to say that. But I'm going to say of everything I have looked at, and I've looked at a lot, I would say that. And at a certain point, you commit to a path and you follow it. it it's something like, and, and you don't, it, it's like you get married. And when you get married, hopefully you are thinking, this woman, this man, is the best person for me in the world. Now, do you know that as an objective fact? No, of course not. You couldn't possibly look at all the three and a half billion members of the opposite sex to decide if this particular partner of yours is the absolute best person you could have married. And, and you know, after you're married, there may be some times when you're thinking, I don't know if this was really the best person for me to marry. But you've made that commitment and you work with that person, isn't it? Hopefully you're not looking around and saying, maybe I should go with that one, and maybe I should go with that one. You make a commitment. You know, my husband used to say to me, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And I would look in the mirror and think, I don't think so. I mean, when I was younger, obviously. I thought, you know, objectively speaking, I don't think that's a true statement. But there'd always be a part of me that would wonder, maybe he actually believes it, and so I was happy. And it's like that. You know, when you want to go to a school, like I got my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So in America, that's a very good school, and for a degree in education, it's, one of the, it's in the top 3% of universities to give a PhD in education. But it's not a, a big known school like Harvard or Princeton or Yale. But I feel it was the best decision for me. It was local. It was a government school, so that means the fees were very low. I could just drive there easily. And I had friends who were getting a PhD at Harvard, and they had to work harder than I did, and I was already working hard enough, thank you very much. So it was like, I thought just for the prestige of a Harvard degree, I wouldn't want to be working three times as hard. So I looked at it and said, I feel that this is the best school for me. And then I made a commitment. I enrolled in the school. Now, once I enroll in the school, I'm not going to be constantly questioning, oh, maybe I should have gone to this school. Maybe I should have gone to this school. Maybe I should have gone to this school. So at a certain point, you can question. Before you go to a school, you can look around and question, where do I want to go to school? Before you get married, you can look around. But at a certain point, you make a commitment. And then, it, to me, it's not so important anymore. I, I don't feel that I need to enthuse myself by saying, this is the best path and this. I don't feel I need that. In fact, I look at that as something rather immature. I don't even care. I really don't care. If there is a better path somewhere or whatever, it doesn't matter to me. Everything I want is here. So, on, on the intellectual conviction, on my experience, on the Sangha, on how I've actually made progress in spiritual life, I haven't seen anything better. And I am very satisfied. Somebody else may be satisfied elsewhere. I, I, that doesn't, I don't see that as a problem, and I don't see that Srila Prabhupada saw that as a problem. His idea was learn to love God. Fall in love with God. And we're saying that a personal understanding of God, Krishna, if you prefer Ram, that's fine. 
But we're saying a personal understanding of God is the easiest if you want to actually fall in love with God. Is that okay? I'm sorry I'm not going to give you a rah-rah. I just, I, I don't have any rah-rah sectarianism in me. I, it, it actually, I, I find it very um, unattractive. So I know there are members of ISKCON who are like, we're the best, and this is the best. And every time I hear that, I'm like, if you really need that in order to get to chant your japa and in order to read the books, then fine. But don't push that on me. I'm not interested in that. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like I'm a citizen of America. Do I think America's the best country? In some things, but not in everything. You know, every country has its benefits, but it's a country of which I'm a citizen. You know, so it's... I, I have not seen anybody offering a system and a sangha and a practice better than what Srila Prabhupada has offered. I haven't seen it. Not holistically. Have I seen some sanghas that are better in certain areas? Frankly, yes. But have I seen anything that's better on a holistic, rounded way? I haven't. But mostly, I, I, my conviction is because it makes a lot of sense. I haven't been able to poke any holes in it, and it works. That's good enough for me. Yes? So, uh, I have my own question. Uh, yes. But I have uh, compromised, in a sense, I have the same... Not only I hear this question from my other, my friends who come to Iskand Munich and other places, yes. but I also... <coughs> When struggle is a bit too strong for me, I happen to be born a Sri Vaishnava for 10,000 years. I mean, it's in the family. For 10,000 years you've been born. It's time that you go to Vaikuntha. <laughs> Any time now. Yes, yes. <laughs> no more, no more 10,000 more births, okay? As you can tell from my looks, yeah. Yes, I can tell. <laughs> but yes. what I meant is uh, we were always a Sri Vaishnava family. There's no such thing as conversion. Uh, so we were always that and as a Sri Vaishnava. I have no contradiction. If they said uh, uh, Krishna is the only God, fine with me. He's my God too. Um, um, sometimes, um, well, I, I take what Iskon preaches as practical Sri Vaishnavism for me, because being away from uh, my hometown, I'm from the South India, I miss the regular. Uh, Where are you from in South India? Uh, from Hyderabad. My, my roots are from near Tirupati. Oh, very nice. Uh, so. Um, family of priests for many years. <laughs> I nice. refrain from saying the number. Um, so 10,000 at least. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have this contradiction, but I have child of friends who come and when they hear Vinayaka or Shiva are demigods and you will only go to a one-fourth of the way to heaven if you focus on them, they are hurt. So I, I have, I, I want to them to continue coming to ISKCON, so I try to give them a short answer. I have no uh, contradiction to me, as I said. Well, Srila Prabhupada wasn't, in, I mean, it's interesting, when Lord Chaitanya traveled through South India, there were some Sri Vaishnavas who yes. became his followers, like Gopabhata Goswami. But it wasn't, Srila Prabhupada's interest was not in converting people. I think this was the strength of the movement. It, it really is, and again, if Prabhupada had had that kind of sectarian conversion mentality, I would not have stepped in the door of a Hare Krishna temple. But sometimes that feeling is creeping in when people misunderstand, when, when, when uh, speakers talk about demigods and say, Ganesha, we well, don't Well, let's, let's get to demigods in a minute. Let's first just talk about 
Vaishnavas, if you're going to worship what we understand as God. So our interest is not to convert people from one religion to another. That's not our interest. Our interest is to flood the world with love of God. Now, what is that going to mean? Will that mean that the Christians and the Muslims, that they find bhakti in their own tradition? I hope so. I don't expect that Christianity and Islam and all these, you know, Judaism and all these religions are going to disappear from the planet. That's not how I see it happening. I see that rather they will find bhakti in their own traditions. There's one gentleman I know quite well who's a Franciscan monk, and he's a Catholic preacher, very well known. He has 100 to 200,000 people come to his classes, and he's, a, he's published many books. So, but he's also a Hare Krishna devotee. So he chants 16 rounds, and uh, he's following four regular principles. So he doesn't advertise to his Catholic audience that he's a Krishna follower, or they would be a little upset. Uh, but he's continuing on in his, in his role like that. And I know, um, I know a, another Catholic monk in Australia who's an initiated devotee. I know of a Muslim iman in Iran who's an initiated devotee. Very secretly, he said if his wife found out, she could divorce him and take the children. So he has to be very secret. Uh, but he's continuing in his practice of Islam and at the same time practicing Krishna consciousness. So it's not a question of conversion. Now, I mean, in, in, for many of our cases, we found it easier to just jump into ISKCON rather than to try to bring the knowledge of bhakti into the traditions of our family. So, you know, I was raised in a Jewish family, and for me to try to bring Krishna consciousness into Judaism was much more difficult than for me to just say, I'm going to go live in an ashram and fully practice the movement of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But that was a personal choice. I mean, I know one, one devotee who's both a Brahmin-initiated devotee and a Jewish rabbi. He's both. And his occupation is he teaches in what's called a yeshiva, a, a, like a university for Judaism. So he doesn't look like a devotee, uh, but he's a, a fully practicing devotee. So it's, it's not that that can't be done. And to take the mission of Mahaprabhu and use that to enliven your own tradition. But if, like me, you feel that you know, you'd rather jump into Mahaprabhu's movement, that's okay too. Either way. Now, demigods is another story. So if we're talking about the worship of God, the one God, then that can be in any tradition. But then you're talking about beings that are not God. So Ganesh and Shiva are not God. Now, if people think they're God, that's a little bit of a problem. Usually, if people have some strong attachment, whatever it may be, whether it's to demigod worship or to meat-eating or whatever it is, you don't pound them on that thing. Leave it alone. Get them to be involved in other areas where they can connect. And those other things, just leave them. I mean, I was just recently in Italy visiting the home of Italians, not Indians, Italians, uh, Brahmin-initiated devotees, they have Gornitai, and they've been devotees for many years, and all over their house was Shiva. Everywhere I looked. And they told me that before joining ISKCON, they were Shiva Bhaktas. 
even though they were Italians and not Indians, that they had taken up some practice like that and they still had attachment to Shiva. But they worship him as a Vaishnava. They worship him as guru. So if you want to worship Shiva as guru, then you can still go to Vaikuntha, you can go to Krishna Loka. In fact, Lord Shiva is there in Krishna Loka. Gopishwar, Shiva, he's there. If you go to Radhakund, you can't even enter Radhakund without the grace of Shiva. There's four deities of Lord Shiva guarding the four directions. One of them is hard to find. But before you enter Radhakund, you have to take permission of Lord Shiva. You cannot enter the Rasalila without the permission of Shiva. So he's there also in Goloka. You know, if you want to worship him independently, that's a little bit of a problem. There's a tradition of Shaivas in India. They're a big, big part of it. They think Shiva is more accessible and, uh, you know, Bhola Shankar, they call him. And it's a very big sect, not sect, I mean, there's a majority are those. Anyway, when you have people that are very attached to this or that, whatever it is, whether they're really attached to Shiva or they think Jesus is the only way or whatever they're really attached to, just get them to do whatever they can do. And, you know, you don't have to fix everybody today. Okay, you can't do it anyway. It won't work. Good luck with it. You know, so just whatever you can get them to do, that's good. And don't fight with them about that. Let it be. No, really, just let it be. You don't, you don't have to like... It doesn't work, in my experience. I don't find that it works. Give them some Krishna prasadam, get them to come and chant. Well, then that's no problem. Get them to chant Hare Krishna. You know, maybe you can get them to read some of the books. And, and that's, and you know, tell them we accept Shiva as, as, we also worship Shiva. We worship him in a different mood. But we also worship him and try not to fight with them so much. It's, it's not... You know, unless they're blasphemers, in which case you should ignore them. But what I try to do is I try to find where's the commonality, where is the place that we can agree, and then we go on from there. You know, I used to, uh, I used to give classes to Southern Baptist ministers. I don't know if you know what that means, but they're like heavy-duty born-again Christians. Yes. And they were in a master's degree program, and they had to study world religions. So their professor, who was very favorable to Krishna consciousness, very, very favorable, would uh, bring them to the temple or sometimes we'd go to their university. I never talked about deity worship. Never. I mean, with Catholics I could have, but not with Southern Baptists. So I just didn't mention it at all. And I didn't mention reincarnation. I didn't mention reincarnation in deity worship. Because then they would say that we're evil heretics going to hell forever. So I talked about other things. I talked about how we should love God and how it's based on mercy and not just our own endeavor. I tried to find areas of commonality. I quoted a verse in the Bible that's almost exactly the same as a verse in the Bhagavad Gita. So, you know, and we, and we got those Southern Baptist ministers to chant Hare Krishna. They chanted Hare Krishna. Every year when we did the class, they chanted the Hare Krishna mantra with us. And they took prasadam. If we said to them, we offered this food to our deities, they wouldn't have touched it. Yes. We didn't tell them. 
people even talk to them about that. I wasn't going to make a point of, of picking on the things that they're going to fight with me about. And if they want to go deeper into Krishna consciousness, then we'll deal with that. Is that all right? Yes. No, I have my own question. That was his. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Are you a ventriloquist? Sorry? You're a ventriloquist? <laughs> you know what a ventriloquist is? No, those voices. You know. Where they throw their voice. So yes, what's your question? Um, how to practice uh, total surrender but still be responsible? I'll let you know when I've totally surrendered. <laughs> how to practice total surrender. No, see, the essential Vaishnava um, is Ramanuja, before he died, he said, if yes. anybody said Sharanagati is not the way, don't believe him. So Sharanagati is a Well, that's what Krishna to, says in the Bhagavad Gita. Central to, a, yes, to my faith. Yes, of course. Your faith, everybody's. Everybody's. Um, but everybody's. Still, that's everybody. If you look at any genuine religion in the world, any, Krishna says, right? Sarvadharma and Prachajama may come Sharanagati. So you look at that and you say, Sarvadharma Prachajama may come Sharanagati. That sounds like I have to give up all my responsibilities and just surrender. And if we're going to interpret that as meaning, all right, I leave my family, I leave the world, I live as a monk in a Himalayan cave. But think about when Krishna gave that instruction to Arjuna. He gave it to him at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, and what did Arjuna do after that? He picked up his Gandiva bow and he started to fight, which was his responsibility. He was a warrior, he was a prince. He didn't renounce his family. He didn't renounce his job. When Krishna says, Yam yam bapis from Ramam, Tvata chante kalevam, tamtam eva chikante asadatad bhava bhavita. So you may think, all right, this means that I should give up everything and just sit and meditate. And what's the next one? The next verse, Mam anusmaram yujacha. Think of me while you fight. What does it mean to be surrendered? Srila Prabhupada has, and I'll turn on my computer again. I'm not going to turn that on. No, I'll just read it. Not will too much. Now the children have gone. It's all right. It's all right. It will be, it'll be less trouble to just read it to you. It's not that long. So, just give me a moment to find it. It's um, a really nice letter that Srila Prabhupada wrote to Jaipataka Swami where he's giving the definition of surrender. And I found this to be very practical and very helpful. Okay. They do not know the secret of surrendering to Krishna. Such surrender devotee, now let's go through these. Such surrender devotee, number one, sees that everything is part of Krishna's plan, that whatever is meant to be, I am doing that. So the first item of full surrender, whatever is meant to be, I am doing that. In other words, I am, if, if I am a person who's dedicated my life to the Lord. And that's an if. But if I am such a person, then every situation that I'm in is the will of the Lord. 
for an ordinary person, every situation they're in is the will of the Lord in a very removed sense. Because every situation they're in is due to their karma, which is indirectly the will of the Lord. But when I've made a commitment, my dear Lord, I surrender to you. I, I am dedicating my life to you. Then everything that happens, every place we're at, every person we're with, everything we're doing is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Next thing. So let me do it with my full attention to every detail. Let me become absorbed in such service, never mind what it is. So whatever I'm given to do at the moment, let me really do it to the best of my capacity. Not just on a material level in terms of expertise, but in a way that that will be satisfying on every level. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, ethically, spiritually. Let me really try to do it in a way that I'm giving it my full attention. Okay. Third, let all other considerations be forgotten and only my desire to... Oh, let all other considerations be forgotten. So... Let me focus on what I'm doing and not be thinking about or worrying about other things. And fourth, only my desire to do the best thing for Krishna's alone pleasure be my motive. So, to do it for only to please Krishna. Not to please anybody else. Not to please my mother, my father, my husband, my wife, my sister, my brother, my daughter, my son, my government, my employer, my employee, whatever. So this is surrender. It's very practical. And such a surrender devotee will appear to be a highly responsible person. Generally. Now sometimes Krishna comes and says, hey, you know, you're 80 years old, renounce the world and go sit in a holy place and just chant. That may be there also. That example is there in our tradition. That's not irresponsible. Just like in the, for normal people in the world, they may get to be 85, 90, 95 years old and they go in an old age home and they give up everything and they just watch TV. Elvis Presley impersonators. Actually. So there comes a point when, you know, maybe the responsible thing to do is to renounce the world and to prepare for death. That may be. But generally, surrender means whatever, whatever is meant to be, I'm doing that. I'm in the proper situation all the time. Whatever people are in front of me, wherever I am, whatever situation I'm in, that is the arrangement of the Lord. I should try to do it to the best of my ability in every detail. should not worry about anything else. And the person I should be thinking about pleasing is God and nobody else. That is surrender. And when someone lives like that, they are extremely happy. It is just, it, it's a, a waterfall of, of joy that one's life is full of joy, which is what should happen when you surrender to God. 
Is that right? Yes. In fact, that, um, what you said and what I noticed among the devotees, even younger ones, and this almost puts me to shame that uh, they are so much younger and they seem to practice this uh, in daily life also. So this um, uh, this uh, satsanga, this is to me a divine bliss and um, great opportunity because well, I am away from home in Munich, I am not close to Sri Lanka. So this is to me um, a big opportunity and I seem to learn or take inspiration even from the younger devotees. Well, that's very nice. Actually, what we're trying to do is we're trying to establish these holy tirtas everywhere. So it's not only that you have to go to India to Sri Ramana. You know, just like you can uh, get online, right? You have your, a phone, and you, if you have a hotspot, you can get online. But you can also make your phone a hotspot, yeah? Yes. Right? So make yourself a hotspot. <laughs> it should be as soon as you walk in the room. Oh, there's Sri Rangam walking. We should feel immediately that we're in a holy place just by your presence. So it shouldn't be just that you have to move your body from this place to that place. And my name is Randa. Oh, seriously? <laughs> That's too funny. I didn't have any idea. Sometimes you end up saying the wrong thing because you don't know, but that time I said the right thing because I didn't know. You know, you said the wrong thing. I did. Okay. The wrong thing. The manga thing. That was good. That was good. I like that. That was very really good. This is the right way and this is the wrong way. And this is the wrong way. That's what we want to do. We want to be that wherever we are, there is the Dham. There is the Tirtha. That we are a walking Tirtha. That anyone who contacts us will immediately feel transported to the spiritual world. It's not just geography. I mean, these geographical places have power. But the Lord's in our heart, yes? Yeah? Well, you know, if he's there, then his dham must be there with him. What do you say? Well, there you go. So you don't need to take your body and physically move it from one location to another. What we need to do is we need to access the dom in our heart and manifest that in our life, and then anyone who contacts us is in the dom, and then we're in the dom wherever we go. You know, you, you, if you have a connection on your phone that's not dependent on Wi-Fi, you know, you get data connection anyway. You don't have to be at home where the Wi-Fi is. It's cheaper too. It is, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> much cheaper. There you go. You can get your data anywhere, and you, it's cheaper. So you should be able to connect with the Lord anywhere, and it's cheaper. You don't have to fly on a plane all the way to India. Anybody else? Okay. Yes. Now, um, I was uh, reading about uh, all the Puranas. Uh, what, what are the 18 Puranas? Uh-huh. Um, which are written by Vedanyas. Yes. And, and I also read that there are six Puranas, uh, every six Puranas are written as uh, Thomas. Uh, yes, different modes, yes. And Satya, Guru Purana. But I was wondering why did um, Vedanyas write Thomas and Rajas Puranas uh, just to confuse. Uh, he could have written just uh, Satguru Puranas. Uh-huh. Uh, why? Or, or did Vedanyas um, really himself segregated it as, as a three different modes or someone else did it. Um, it's, 
not really a serious question, but as no, it's, it's a just very, it's a very good question, and this this question you brought up is actually one of the reasons why I feel that this process that I'm in is the best process. That the Vedic religion is very all-encompassing. You know, you have various religions on the planet who are saying everybody has to just do this one thing in this one way. Did you want to come and speak now, Gorari? Did you want to come and speak now? Uh, not at all. I think not at you all. Are, you are definitely the best of speakers. I mean, I'm supposed to say something about the Six Coast family a little bit later. Oh, so what time did you want to start? Looks like now, because you came in now. But it seems to be between Prabhupada and... Uh, well, we're actually just having an open Q&A. Yeah, and I think, sincerely, I think the opportunity to have your association and to ask a question is much more important than any other presentation. So I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't actually agree with that. No problem. <laughs> so, so I, I think your presentation is also very helpful. Do you want to start now? Should I just answer no, this last all, question no, and then all. end? Or what, what time would you like to start? Uh, uh, we have WhatsApp, so when could be the time? And then you can just inform me and then I just... Why don't we set a time and I'll end at that time. It's now 4.10 and they're going to need a break. So why don't we go to 4.30 and then we can have like a 10-15 minute break. And then like at 4.45 you come. Does that sound good to you? Is it okay? 4.45? Yes. So we'll end here at 4.30 and then you can take a 15-minute break and at 4.45. Is that all right with you, Adi Chandra? Yes, yes. Or would you rather something else? No, that's fine. Actually, I wanted a 15-minute session where, you know, because one group is coming from Munich, one is coming from Frankfurt, they don't know each other also. Uh, you wanted them to get some time kind to meet each other. Kind of. So then maybe, maybe you start at 5? I, what I can do, I am on standby. And you just uh, just let me know anytime it's good for me. Let me know, and then I come. And please take the, all the time that you need. It. It's uh, we are not here to rush, or we are not here to fulfill a schedule that we had planned. We are here to get Krishna conscious. And but make way, sure that you hear Gorahari's presentation. Yeah, that you, you must do that. How long does your presentation last for? I I think twenty minutes to half an hour, something like five to five thirty. Something like that. Okay. 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 Good. Welcome all. Sorry, you oh, you're not interrupting. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you for coming. Just we were talking about a person just by their presence. They bring in the dom. So you just exemplified that walking into the room. Mother Mila was with us for one full week speaking on Manashiksha. It's just amazing to have such opportunity of person. She has this ability of making also Krishna consciousness in such practical way. Yes, it's true. Really it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's a great chance actually to, to have her here and that you can ask questions. Really take, take as much time as, as keep on asking questions even if the time is passing. Thank okay. Oh, some more children. So I really like the fact if we had if we had the whole world under Vedic culture, if everybody in the world were following the Vedas, there would be something for everyone. That's the beauty of the Vedic religion. If you're really in the mode of ignorance and you don't want to get out of the mode of ignorance, you have no interest in the mode of passion. 
there's a religious system for you in the Vedas. Isn't that amazing? Instead of saying to people, you have to do this and only this or you're going to hell. Everybody has to do this. Yeah, uh-oh, is right. What a, I mean, what a cruel God that would be. I just think, why do you want to love and serve such a God who is saying, it's only this way for every... That's not the Vedas. You know, you want to take someone who's in the mode of ignorance and bring them up. So the Puranas in the mode of ignorance, what they're doing is taking people attracted to that mode and stuck in that mode and elevating it. After all, they're going to the Shastra. They're going to understand the Shastra with the help of Brahmanas. Well, right there and then, they're going to have some contact with something that's elevating them. Do you know that Srila Prabhupada took the verse, Rasoham Apsukhanteya, where Krishna says, I'm the taste of water. And he said, you can tell the alcoholic, when you're drinking your wine, think Krishna's the taste of your wine. He said, and if you do that, someday you become a great saintly person. That's amazing, isn't it? If we had the world under Vedic religion, there'd be a place for everyone. If we had the whole world under Islam, most of us would be dead. Right? They'd kill most of us. They would, actually. I, mean, I don't know, to be recorded. I shouldn't record that, but it's true. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's true. The Christians were doing it too, you know. They, they said it themselves. You're just repeating what they said. Well, but you know, the Christians also did it. They went around the world killing people who weren't Christians. You know that, yes? So now the Christians are talking about the Islamic terrorists. It's like, well, but there were Christian terrorists before, the Islamic terrorists. And we were just, when we were in Italy, we were going to these museums, and the Romans were the terrorists. They were taking the Christians and cutting them up and burning them alive and all these things. So, but we don't find this in the Vedic... It's all right, I don't mind. We don't find this in the Vedic religion. We don't find people saying, you have to do it this way, or we're going to burn you and cut you up and shoot you full of arrows. And We saw that in the museum St. Sebastian, who was shot full of arrows because he was a Christian by the Romans. So that's not our mood. Our mood is there's a place for everybody. If you want to worship Shiva, fine. Worship Shiva. He's a Vaishnava. Eventually, he'll take care of you. We advise you to worship the Lord. We advise you to come to Satvagun. We advise you to go beyond Satvagun and come to Bhakti. We advise you to chant the Hare Krishna mantra. But, you know, if you're not willing to do that, here's some place for you. Here's something you can do. And you're still within the Vedic religion. I just think that's amazing. And I think only a religious system like that is able to engage the world. That's a mini-driven system. It, it's, it's wonderful. It's so intelligent. And if you say, why don't you give everyone the best thing? Because frankly, not everybody wants the best thing. No. You know? Not everybody wants diamonds. Some people want glass. They actually want glass. Not everybody wants to eat healthy food. Have you realized this? Some people don't want to eat healthy food. They actually don't want it. They want to eat garbage. They prefer it. I mean, I met someone like that. I don't know if in Germany they have this processed cheese. 
You have it here, like you could, you, it's, all, it's already in slices and it's processed cheese. It's not actual cheese, you know. Yes, it's plastic. It's just plastic. It's just some chemicals. And I met somebody who liked this, and I said, why don't you try real cheese? And she said, I prefer this. Okay. And what do, what do you do? If somebody, you know, somebody wants to drink soda instead of fruit juice. Why would you want to drink that? But people, there are some people that's their taste. So, right now in the world, if you have that kind of taste, you're just lost. You're just lost. You, you don't have any connection with any kind of religious system. But if we had the Vedic system, then you're not lost. There's something you can do. You have some connection. Of course, we're telling people, come to the highest thing, because even though you're under the Vedic umbrella, you're still under karma, you know? It, it's, not, it's not without its consequences. And so our advice to people is, you know, don't follow karmakanda, and don't follow the Puranas that are in Rajagun and Tamagun. Our advice is just take directly to bhakti and take directly to the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. But not everybody's going to do that. I mean, to expect that everybody's going to do that is not reasonable. Mm-hmm. You're very welcome. One question from my side. Yes. Uh, I think everybody experiences uh, you know, Krishna consciousness. Sometimes you know, it's a bit subtle, sometimes it's very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to know if, in case you can share your experiences of, you know, experiencing Krishna in your life, you know, strongly. Oh, but some of those are too personal to share. That's the problem. So if I can think of something that I could share that's real but not, that I'm allowed to share. Um, You can make it anonymous. I can make it anonymous. <laughs> I know somebody who had this. I, I, with, with all respect, that's ridiculous. I can make it anonymous. I can talk about other people's experiences. That's I can do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> then I withdraw my objection. Um. In, in a general way, I've had many strong experiences where I'm, I'm aware of, of truth and aware of knowledge and happiness beyond anything I can access materially. And sometimes that truth is even very heavy and humbling, but it's still very enlivening. So sometimes the truth I'm aware of is how fallen and low and disgusting I am. But even that awareness is is encouraging because I feel the, the hand of, of a loving God in showing me that. I mean, sometimes the very strong experiences I've had are even just... They, they seem so trivial on the material platform, but they're very much the awareness of God. I mean, one, one story I tell a lot. But... Uh, I was looking in my closet and thinking, I only have three silk saris. Actually, no, I only have one. 
But I was thinking, I only have three silk saris. It would be nice to have another one for festivals. And I thought, I'd like it to be kind of beige with, you know, a heavy silk, beige with an embroidered border. And I had the picture in my mind, very clear. And then I thought, maybe next time I go to India, I'll buy it. Uh, but it'll be about $40. You can tell how long ago this was. I thought it would be about $40. And I thought, oh, I am not going to spend $40 on a sari. So that whole thought, that whole train of thought was what? 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And I forgot about it. And then three days later, this is when I was running a Gurukul, three days later, one of the mothers comes to pick her daughter up at, from school. She says, hey, Ermila, come here. So I walk over to the car, and she hands me that sari. Exactly, exactly the picture I had in my mind. Exactly. She just hands it to me. And then I felt so sad. I was like, Krishna, I'm sorry. I asked you for sorry. I hadn't even asked him, but just that I thought of it. So I've had many experiences like that. I mean, many, many. Many where I was, I was staying at one temple. I was walking back to my room from the temple, and I thought, I'd like some cashews. And there on my door was somebody had put a bag of cashews with a rubber band on it to the door. I mean, so many. When, when we were working on the, um, on the Learn to Read program, when I started doing that program, I had literally no money. I mean, like, nothing. I had no income. I had practically no savings. I had no team. I had never done major publishing before. I'd done some publishing, but not major thing like that. I didn't know how to go about it at all. And Krishna just kept giving everything I needed as I needed, when I needed it. But one of the funniest things, I mean, there's so many stories in relation to that. But one of the funniest ones was when I was in London and I got an email from someone, Servant 108, and it said, I want to make a donation anonymously. Okay, whatever. I said, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, I want to make a donation. So two days later, one of the brahmacharis hands me an envelope with some cash in it. I said, who's this from? He said, I'm not allowed to tell you. I said, okay. So I opened it up, and it had 1,200 British pounds in it. So I said, okay, Krishna, what exactly am I supposed to do with this? And it was one or two days later, I was meeting with a devotee who'd been involved with the project, and I said, Prabhu, it's getting too big for me to manage it. I said, there's now 200 people working on this project all over the world and I just can't manage it all myself. I need another project manager. So he's quiet for a while, and he says, well, I could do it. He said, but my wife won't let me work for free anymore. She's tired of my working for free. I said, well, how much do you need? So you know what he said. He said, I need 1,200 pounds. And I said, well, I happen to have that in my pocket. So, you know, I, I, there's so many, uh, so many amazing incidents like that. But I'd say more are the times when I have just understanding. Many times people ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, and then I know the answer. That, that's a very frequent thing that happens with me. Like someone will ask me a question, and I'll say, I don't know, and then I know. And it's like, how did I know? I just knew. And I, I, I often have a sense of, of Krishna's presence, and, and Krishna dealing with me, and and giving me knowledge and giving me understanding. and that's, that's quite frequent. I'd say it's more often than not. You know, sometimes not, but generally. 
I, I, I have a very, very clear sense, and it's, um, and I'm having that that guidance and understanding of Krishna. But I also know of many devotees who are actually. I mean, I'm I'm really a beginner in Krishna consciousness, but I have, I know of many devotees who've had some pretty amazing experiences. I mean, one story I can tell you about uh, from France, from New Mayapur, was told to me by a woman who'd been the head pujari there for like 30 years. And she told me that uh, there they have deities of Radha Krishna, Krishna Balaram, Gornitai. And Indra Swami, before he was a sannyasi, he was a householder, he had lived there. His wife had run the Gurukula. So he had come back there to visit and when he'd come to visit, he goes in the temple room, and this Pujari and her husband are there with Maharaj in the temple room. And uh, she said that while she was there, standing with Maharaj, she looked at the deities, and they weren't deities. There was actually Krishna and Balaram there, and Radha Krishna and Gornitai. And she, she said she didn't say anything at all to anyone. She was just completely astonished. And she said a week later, her husband said to her, you know when Maharaj was here? He said, and we were all in the temple room in front of the deities. Did you... Um, did you have an interesting, you know, did you have any kind of unusual experience? And, and he had the same experience. I, I know of many, many people when looking at the deities of Axusin, there's Krishna, there's Radharani. That, that's actually not uncommon. Um, I know of one devotee in, in a kirtan retreat that as she was chanting Hare Krishna, she actually saw baby Krishna pulling on her sari and, and, and asking her to feed him. So these kind of things, I mean, it's not the common experience of devotees, but there are many devotees who have these experiences where they actually see the Lord and, and talk to the Lord and interact with Him face-to-face and eye-to-eye. Uh, so that's certainly that. I think my, my main thing is just that I see how Krishna's working in my life. Some things, of course, I, I don't know. There are certain things about my life that I really can't understand, that I go to Krishna and say, why? And he does, he's just silent. So, uh, but, uh, but with most things, it, it's there. He's a very um, accessible, felt presence. Sometimes in little funny things like giving me a sari or cashews or a pair of shoes or, or things like that. And, and just in, in a general reciprocation of, of understanding. Is that okay? Yeah. Do you travel all over the world? Well, there's many places I haven't been, but yes. And you... Uh, I've never been to Switzerland. Jesus. I've never been to Switzerland. I know, huh? <laughs> How ridiculous is that? But still, I haven't been. And I haven't been... In South America, I've only been to Brazil. I know, isn't that a shame? So there's many more places I haven't been than I've been, but yes, I've traveled around the world so many times that I've stopped counting. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular time you give certain... Like, we are lucky to have you here. Today we came and you, we can have an understanding... Of Every year it's, it's always different. I don't have a regular schedule. Mm-hmm. You, have, you stay in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, not really. I have an official legal residence in Washington State, but that's just my son's house. I actually just have like two boxes of stuff there. Uh, right now, the only place I have a home is in India, in Govardhan. 
But for uh, several years, I had my son lived in Hawaii, and I actually had a room in his house that was just my room. I mean, guests stayed there when I wasn't there. But the rest of the family didn't use it. But now they're renting that place, so I don't have that place anymore. I went for about four or five years uh, with no place at all. And then I got that room in my son's house, and now I have a place in Govardhan. But I mean, I have a place in Govardhan, but I've only spent two weeks there. I kind of live on. I kind of live on the road. I don't really have. I mean, my books are there. My artwork's on the wall, so it's my place in that sense. I have some clothes there. How did you meet Prabhupada Maharaj? How did I meet Prabhupada? Well. Interestingly enough, I met Srila Prabhupada for the first time after I'd already become his disciple. So, do you want to know how I met Prabhupada or how I contacted Krishna consciousness or both? Maybe both. I want to know both. Well, the problem is that it's 4.30. Um, I'll tell you a little bit, but the story of how I came to Krishna consciousness is on my website. So, it's on ormiladasi.com in my unpublished essays. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole story of how I came to Krishna consciousness. So I'll just briefly, briefly, briefly. Um, so I don't know if it was 10,000 lifetimes. <laughs> Not quite sure about how many lifetimes. But when I, as I said, when I was four, I asked my mother, you know, why are we Jewish? And she said, because my mother's Jewish. And I said, well, why is she Jewish? She said, because her mother's Jewish. And I said, that's no good. We have to do what's true. And then when I was eight, I read about reincarnation in the encyclopedia, and I decided that that's what I believed. And uh, I told my rabbis that, and they didn't like it very much. When I was nine, I got a map of India that I put on my wall, and I got, you know, the little dolls they sell in the tourist shops and the airports that are, like, of, of people in Indian dress doing, that's you know... Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I had a bunch of those. I got a bunch of those. And I asked my mother if I could wear a sari. Now, in those... What? At nine years of age. At nine years of I didn't know anybody from India. And in those days in America, there were heavy quotas. And hardly... There were no Hindu temples in America. And there were basically almost no Indians in America at all in those days. They started easing up in the quotas in 64 and this would have been in 64. Uh, but my mother had some friend who'd been to India, so she got a piece of cloth and, like, sewed it. You know how for children they make these, like, sewn? Yeah, it was a saffron silk sari. So then when I was 12, my sister and, and her husband lived on the Lower East Side, which was where Prabhupada had his first temple. And uh, when I'd visit her once or twice a week, and I would just wander around the area on my own. And there was a shop called the Krishna Store that was made by an Alan Coleman who uh, had recorded Prabhupada chanting. He made a, and I, none of you are going to know what a record album is, but anyway, he made a record album of Prabhupada chanting. And he would play it in the shop all the time. So I never bought anything in his shop, but I would go and listen to this record of Prabhupada chanting. He had like posters of Krishna and Vishnu and Hanuman and everybody from India in Indian clothes. I don't think I ever bought anything. And, uh, but I would just go and listen to this. I don't remember meeting the devotees at that time, although they would have been in that area. I mean, I was literally around the block 
from Prabhupada's first temple, but I have no recollection of it. I used to go to Tompkins Square Park all the time, which is where the devotees were chanting. But if I saw the devotees there, it didn't make an impression on me. When I was 14, I, I used to listen to the radio every morning when I was getting dressed. And when I was 14, I heard on the radio the Radhakrishna Temple album that George Harrison had. Um, have you all heard what we play in the morning for Didi greeting, Govinda? Have you all heard that? I'll play that for you. So I heard this on the radio. Yeah, but with Bajimuna singing. So at that time I was 14, and as I said, I used to um, used to listen to the radio all the time. So let me just find this for you. Sometimes they announce it before, sometimes after. They must have announced it before, and I missed it. So I started listening to the radio constantly. I, I only heard it one more time. And I wrote it down, you know, Radha Krishna Temple. And uh, anyway, I got the record. And in the record, there were pictures of Krishna. They were the same pictures that were on the cover of Prabhupada's Krishna book. But I didn't know that. And one time in high school, secondary school, the library, I saw one of the other students was reading a Krishna book with the same cover. And I said, I have that picture on my wall, you know, that I'd taken it out. And this boy, I mean, he was a friend of a friend. I, I, I hardly even knew his name. And he said, oh, I go to the temple. I'm like, what temple? He said, yeah, there's a Krishna temple. He said, would you like to come? Sure. <laughs> so I went to the temple, and uh, one of the devotees, Jadarani, talked to me for a couple hours, and I'm like, okay, that's it. This is what I want to do with my life. And then later, I actually, uh, I actually joined the movement when I was 17, so some years later. I moved in the temple in Chicago, but that's a long story, and you can, you can read about that on my, on my blog. So then when I joined, I joined the day Kishore Kishori were installed in Chicago. That was when I actually moved in permanently, right after I was 18. I dropped out of school, so I had been going to college, my poor mother. My father was very supportive. He said, I'm so glad you're looking for God. He said, I wish you would have done it in Judaism, but that's not important. What's important is you're looking for God. My mother was like, oh, you're leaving, you're 
tradition, your family. It took my mother a long time to accept that I was a devotee. In those days, you know, you dropped everything, you moved in the ashram. Yeah? No, what did you want to say? Just, uh, I wanted to request you can, tomorrow we can do, you know, some. Oh, maybe. Nectar, maybe. All right, well, I'll just tell you about my first meeting with Prabhupada and then I'll stop. Yeah, yeah. He's indirectly, politely telling me that I need to say. No, 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 I'm saying that. Yes, 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 that is what you are doing. You can continue with that, no problem. I've been to India enough times, I know. <laughs> In America, we would just say, you need to stop now. <laughs> we are also Indian, please go on. <laughs> I'll just tell you this one thing, then I'll stop. So I moved in the temple, and uh, then I got married four months later to one devotee, and he was already initiated. So the temple president, without my knowledge, wrote Srila Prabhupada a letter and asked him to initiate me. He figured I was married to an initiated devotee, I should also be initiated. I had no idea. And uh, then so Prabhupada wrote a letter back and said, yes, I've accepted her as my disciple. And her name is Ermula, I was like. But I hadn't even met Prabhupada. So they did the yagya, you know, just the temple president did the yagya on behalf of Srila Prabhupada. And then I met Prabhupada for the first time the next summer. So that was in December 73. I met him in um, June or July of 74 when he came to Chicago for the Rathiyatra. And the first time I saw him, I actually went to the airport to pick him up, but I missed seeing him there. And the first time I saw him was on the Vyasa Sun the next morning when he was giving Bhagavatam class. And I was standing next to the Vyasa Sun the whole time of the class, fanning him with a peacock fan. And before Prabhupada had come, you know, we would listen to Prabhupada's lectures, recorded lectures. And I felt that hearing Prabhupada in person was exactly the same as listening to a recorded lecture. Exactly. I didn't find any difference which made me very happy because I thought, well, Prabhupada's always been here in his lectures, and when he leaves, he'll still be here in his lectures. I didn't feel dependent on his physical presence. So that made me very happy. But it also made me very unhappy because I had expected some, you know, mystical thing, and it didn't happen at all. So later that morning, uh, we got to meet with Prabhupada, my husband, my father, and myself. And it was a... Your father is also devotee. Well, he's not living anymore. But my uh, my father became a life member. He never became a full-on devotee. He was practicing to some extent for a while. When, when Prabhupada gave me second initiation, my father gave Prabhupada the check for life membership. Prabhupada said, good father, good daughter. I had a very wonderful father. Uh, but anyway, in that meeting, Prabhupada was very casual. So on the Vyasa Sun, he was very formal, you know, but when we were meeting with him, his room was very casual. And, uh, he, was just, he was just leaning back, you know, like this. 
And that was when my father said, you know, is it all right if I come to the Hare Krishna temple even though I have my own religion? He said, even though, you know, I'm Jewish, I have my own religion. And Prabhupada said, yes. He said, there can be many religions just like many planes are going to Chicago. He said, but they have to know they're going to Chicago. Otherwise, there's not any meaning to many planes. He said, there can be many religions if they're aiming to know God and to love him. I thought about that for many, many months afterwards, that most of the religions in the world today are not teaching to know God and to love him. They're teaching something else. They're teaching to go to heaven, or they're teaching how to be prosperous in this world, or they're teaching how to gain salvation. But they're not really teaching how to know and love God. In the original form, certainly, but it had become lost. And then my father said, well, I'm really coming just because I love my daughter and son-in-law. I'm not coming to see Krishna. He seemed to have some question whether it was okay to come to the temple when he wasn't a devotee. And Prabhupada laughed and he said, he said, yes, they are loving Krishna. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I love Krishna. He said, chanting and dancing are symptoms of loving Krishna. He said, so they are loving Krishna and you are loving them. So two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. And then uh, my father was uh, the CEO of a multinational food company. And in America, he was a, a very, very famous man, very wealthy. And so he said, well, Prabhupada, I'm in the food business, and I don't understand why you're so anxious to give people your food. Even people who don't know anything about your philosophy, you're always giving them your food. And Prabhupada was laughed. Prabhupada was such, in such a, a jolly mood, and, and he said, do you believe in infection? And my father said, yes. And he said, well, just like if you eat the food of a sick person, you will get their disease. So if you eat the food that Krishna has eaten, you will be infected with Krishna's disease. It was a lovely meeting. And uh, when we walked out of the room, my father looked at me and he said, now I know why you've come to this movement. He said, this is a genuine holy man. And it, it always interested me, I never asked my father, but it always interested me how my father came to that conclusion after just like a 20-30 minute meeting with Sri Prabhupada. And what I can't say, you know, he's, he's not living anymore, but I, I can't say what was his thinking. But my own feeling was just Prabhupada's genuineness. You know, he was just, Prabhupada was free from any kind of manipulation or, or pretense of any kind. You know, he was very authentic, just completely authentic. Almost, almost in kind of a simple childlike way. Uh, you know, just like little children aren't pretentious, little two, three-year-old children. They just are who they are, you know. And it was very much like that with Srila Prabhupada. I mean, he was very sophisticated, he was very experienced in the world, very knowledgeable in the world, he was very competent in worldly things, he certainly wasn't irresponsible in, in worldly things, but he had that, that just completely open, innocent authenticity about him. And that was, that was the thing that I, I, I just picked up. And it, it just shone through everything. Oh, another thing he said to my father, actually, at the beginning... Um, he was talking about Prahlad and Hiranyakashipu. He was like comparing me to Prahlad and my father to Hiranyakashipu. <laughs> <laughs> but my father didn't mind. 
I mean, and that was what, one of the many interesting things about Srila Prabhupada. Ravinda Suprabhu, my godbrother, boy, that looks dangerous, talked about how Prabhupada called his father a fool. And Srila Prabhupada could do that. You know, when, when devotees tried to imitate that, it didn't work very well. But, but Prabhupada, because he, just, he didn't have any false ego, you know, he wasn't trying to overlord somebody or control them or manipulate them or shame them or, you know, he only had love and concern for people. So even if he said very heavy, critical things, they didn't mind. And it was, uh, that was also very, very interesting. So thank you very much. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be giving the Chaitanya Charitamrita to class. Sometime. Well, I don't know. I'm going to give the class tomorrow morning what and Monday morning. Uh, the class is at 7.45 in the morning in the okay. temple. But this will be like uh, Bhagavatam or CC class. of. Is that bad? No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just asking. Yes, it will be a CC class. The topic of that class is that Lord Chaitanya is God. And basically in the purport, Prabhupada is just giving... Basically, in the purport, Prabhupada is giving just one quote from the Shastra after another, after another, after another, that Lord Chaitanya is God. So that's the class tomorrow. And I was going to talk about tomorrow, how my plan right now is how we should make sure that what we're following is actually bona fide. Especially when we want to understand who is God. And that's certainly very significant, what you're talking about, this and that demigod or... You know, people worshipping this man as God and that man as God and, and so forth. Um, so I don't know if I'll have time to do anything else other than that. But um, this was my one program for today. But certainly you're welcome to come in the morning. I brought some of these books with me, if you're